0: Welcome to the Inside History Podcast. Today we speak to Nigel Farndale, the author of The Dictator's Muse, which is a novel centred around the filmmaker Lenny Riffenstahl. Riffenstahl directed The Triumph of the Will and Olympia, the films of the 1936 Berlin Olympics. A controversial figure, she is remembered more for her association with the Nazi Party and considered to be a key part of the party's propaganda machine with her movies. Nigel Farndale, We'll explain more as we take a closer look at the life, films and politics of Lenny Riffenstahl. This is a historical fiction that you've been writing. What kind of research did you do in order to find out more about uh, Lenny Riffenstahl um, uh, well, just about everything I could lay my hands on in terms of reading matter. <clears throat>
1: There's been a few biographies written off that. Um, and I suppose, well, the, my initial idea for this, uh, it, it sort of came about by default in that um, I, I combine writing, uh, being an author with uh, being a journalist. And back in 2000, I was... Working as a a chief interview on the uh, Sunday Togo and was asked to um, go and interview uh, Lady Riefenstahl in Germany. She was 98 at the time, incredible. And um, I couldn't do it because it clashed with another interview I was supposed to be doing, which was with, uh, of all people, Ronnie Corbett. Um, And I I was sort of, so it was a bit of a tough call on my part given how uh, interested I was in her the time to extend, but how much more interested I became in her afterwards. And on balance though, when I look, think back to that chance of having uh, got interviewed her, um, it's probably as well that I didn't because the conceit of um, writing historical fiction is that although you're sort of taking real people, you're, you're striving towards a sort of a psychological truth, and that seemed to be um, or a literary truth, and that seemed to be particularly relevant in her case because the more I r- researched her life um, having having well first of all I, I read the biographies and then I, I watched all of her films, but then I read her memoirs very carefully, and she w- was a sort of great one for reinventing herself essentially uh, and it occurred to me that she she was the ultimate the ultimate unreliable narrator um, you know there'll be, be little sort of omissions uh, and, and half-truths and, and discrepancies but also she'd sort of fudge things she, she would um change someone's name um and describe an incident and, and for instance when she went to New York uh, to publicise her film Olympia, which was which had been met with great uh, excitement and acclaim in Europe. Um, She she sort of claimed that she stayed at the Waldorf Hotel, but in fact it was uh, a different hotel, a lesser hotel. And and she little things like that. She was she was always sort of fudging dates and just just sort of bending the truth a bit. And this got me thinking. Actually, she would make a very good a sort of fictional character really and, and just have having that as a sort of starting point to to try and get to the truth of someone who has a lot to hide in a way because she she certainly did uh, uh, she she was although she, she's generally held as being um the, the, probably the greatest uh female film director of the 20th century certainly um no, no less a film critic than the than new yorker's Pauline Kale thought so. Uh, she she was nevertheless incredibly sort of divisive and controversial and ambivalent character, um, and and right throughout her long life, you know, she, she was 101 when she died. Uh, she was met with um, uh, you know a certain amount of uh, skepticism and and disapproval. Um, i think in a, in a lot of quarters and um and it just seemed to me she was she was she was incredibly litigious as well in in her old age uh, which which may have meant i i dodged a bullet by not interviewing her because the, my friend and colleague Dane david um, uh, um, so <laughs> my brain David Jenkins sorry. um he, he went to interview in, in my stead and he um showed me all her, his notes that he'd taken the time he's actually sitting in her sitting room so it was good uh, useful for me when, when writing the book to be able to evoke that sort of sense of being in the room and getting getting the right atmosphere and everything um, but she she was incredibly litigious and any uh, journalists who, who claimed that she was a Nazi would get a, a sort of a, a writ slapped on them uh, and she was spent her whole life fighting this uh, fighting to sort of Repair her her reputation, I suppose, because she was very much uh, In the public imagination aligned with Hitler and the Third Reich and um, She was the for a while the star filmmaker of the Third Reich and that was The thing with which she's most associated
0: Which kind of leads me I mean that that final part that you're talking about how she tries to almost like distance herself from her association with the Nazi party later on in life it's, it's quite interesting because it's almost like she signs like a, a Faustian pact uh, with the Nazi party. Um, why do you think she was so attracted to them in the first place? Do you think it was purely to further her career or do you think that there was, that, that they were doing something that she actually agreed with at the time?
1: Uh, well, that's, that's one
0: of the conceits of, of writing,
1: trying to get to the truth through fiction because you do it as a, an exercise of empathy, um, but but re- from reading from what we know about her mm-hmm. and from what she said in her memoirs, um, which were written fifty years after the event, anyway, so she'd had a long time mm-hmm. to get her to, to sort of get her version in order in a in a way. So in a way, it's not as reliable as um, as the diaries of Joseph Goebbels, which were contemporaneous and and only came to light. They actually came to light just before she published her memoirs. So she would have had access to them. And she, she features in his diaries and, and he features a lot in her memoirs. So she could sort of tally things up a bit and and spin, spin events to reflect well on her. Whether she was sympathetic to them, my well, at the end of the war, I mean, the official line is that she was... Uh, at the end of the war, the the, the Allies interrogated her and um, concluded, after a long investigation, that she should be considered a fellow traveller only, and, and that means that she just happened to be in that place at that time, but she wasn't a committed Nazi, so she didn't have to. She wasn't interned or anything. She was she was allowed to uh, go about her, her return to a normal life. Um, but she was clearly very caught up in the glamour of the nazis and that sounds like an odd word to use but when you consider in the early 1930s um that the nazis came along hitler and uh, the whole movement was was a reaction against sort of a, um the, the the chaos of the, of the Weimar republic Uh, all the hyperinflation and everything like that. And people did consider, once they saw the economy turning around because of his huge sort of Keynesian spending programme, building all those autobahns and everything, and and suddenly the the economy picking up again, and partly because of the incredible spending on the the military, um, people began to feel sort of more optimistic. And then what's fascinating about looking at uh, and Riefenstel's films, she was first commissioned to write uh, to to do a documentary about the um the 5th uh Nuremberg rally in 1933 and uh it was pretty you you can't when you when you see it it only recently was was discovered this it was it sort of it was a copy of it left in um london well, i think when she she came over to london in in 1930 uh, when would it be? In 33, the year uh, of, of um, 34, early 34, to, to talk to students at uh, um, London University about her filmmaking. And I think at that point, she left a copy of, of that film, of the uh, first, uh, of, of the Nuremberg Valley from 1933. And it just sort of gathered dust, um, and it was sort of forgotten about. But back in Germany, Because uh, um, Ernst Röhm featured heavily in that uh, 1933 Nuremberg rally, and then subsequently was murdered by Hitler in the Night of the Long Knives and fell out of favour, Hitler then decided that all copies of the film should be destroyed and that to to still have a copy would be considered uh, treasonous, treacherous. And... um, so that, that missing copy was sort of forgotten about in London. So it only came to light in the in the, I guess in the 90s. Um, and what that uh, film shows is that the, uh, the Nazi Party rally from 1933 was pretty shambolic. And they were all pretty pasty-faced and unfit-looking, and their, their uniforms were pretty shabby, not at all what you associate with uh, the incredibly slick choreographed version of the... Uh, the, the Nazi party. Um, and then within the space of one year, when they held the, um, the sixth uh, na- national rally of the Nazi party at Nuremberg, and Lenny Riefenstahl was again invited to film it. And from that film came her um, sort of epic documentary, Triumph of the Will, which won lots of awards and was, was incredibly Innovative and um, really sort of quite uh, aesthetically pleasing in places. It sounds strange to say that, but mm-hmm. if, you, if you look at the it, film, it's uh, it's an incredible piece of cinema. And she was she was rightly sort of acclaimed for for having um, come up with these new techniques. As a technician, she was sort of held as being. Uh, the sort of female equivalent of, of um, Alfred Hitchcock or Orson Welles, um, particularly after that film, which won lots of awards, the, the Paris Exhibition Award, etc. in 1937. Um, and in that film, <clears throat> Triumph of the World, you, you see things like um, uh, Hitler flying into Nuremberg mm. on a plane, which casts a shadow on the clouds. It's coming in. It forms a, Sort of cruciform. And uh, I I got the impression that Lenny Riefenstahl had had been inspired for that um, by her trip to London, where she'd been looking out of her plane and seeing the shadow it cast on the clouds. And this gave her the idea of, of Hitler sort of descending on Nuremberg for the rally. And she then presented him as a sort of almost Wagnerian demigod, sort of seen from below. In a very sort of um, the, the sort of blocky, and geometric shapes, a very sort of monumental figure, but also seen from above because she asked um, the architect Albert Speer to to construct a, a cage for her, and she went up along 150 feet in the air along uh, the, the side of one of these um, big uh, flagpoles that held, held swastikas. And and overlook the whole um, parade ground at Nuremberg, and and look down. And and from her vantage point, she went up there with a a camera. It's quite sort of uh, bold stuff, really. It was one of the first aerial uh, bits of moving image ever attempted, other than in the plane. And uh, you can see how the the, as as the various formations of soldiers. There was the SS and the and the SA. as they sort of veer left and right, forming these sort of curves, she used different sort of camera lenses, so a long telephoto lens that foreshortened the the close-up images and made them sort of blurred. So it's almost like abstract patterns, and you sort of almost forget what you're watching. Um, And what you're watching is actually quite chilling when you realise subsequently what it it all meant and what... uh, what, what essentially was going on there, which was to sort of glorify um, Hitler and the, and the Nazi party. And I think uh, that she, to go back to your question, I think she first and foremost regarded herself as a, an artist. Uh, she, she was only interested in art, not politics. She kept re- repeating that. And I think she genuinely meant that. She was never a member of the Nazi party. And the only reason she'd got that job was she'd been a, a film star uh, actress, Herself in the in twenties and early thirties, uh, and had also been a, a dancer and uh, very successful. You know, she. she was, her friends included people like um, Marlene Dietrich, who later went to America, of course. Um, and in fact, one of the reasons she wanted to follow her to America is because uh, she'd watched uh, Dietrich being a success over in, um, over in, in Hollywood and, and wanted to uh, follow her out there and do the same thing but it has sort of, she went on this different path and it was because she, um, Hitler had had watched one of her films and um, admired it and and they'd sort of got in touch with each other. And she then, uh, he he was, this was on the cusp of him becoming chancellor. He, He was sort of quite a magnetic figure for a lot of Germans everyone was talking about him. And she went to watch one of his rallies and after that she wrote him a letter. And um, they got became they became friendly. I think there wasn't anything. I didn't think. I don't think they had a relationship. Although there were lots of rumours. Um, but she, he admired her uh, for, as an artist uh, in the same way that he admired uh, Albert Speer as, as an architect, and, and the, sort of regarded the two as sort of quite complementary in a way. So he then a- approached her to to make his uh, that first film, which was a. A disaster, and then things like she would instruct him to, um, whatever you do, don't look him down the camera lens when you're sort of coming towards the cameras, and he would forget to do this, and he was twitching, and 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 it didn't didn't reflect well, and, and also that it was very badly choreographed. So, so Hitler would be seen walking across the parade ground at Nuremberg with this sort of rabble following him. There was no sort of coherence to it, and uh, she was the one who sort of said, "Look, you've got to get your Act together. It's all about image, and, and he sort of bought into that. Cause he was he was very image conscious himself. You know, there's this speculation that he his whole sort of style of delivery had come been inspired by of all people um, Gustav Mahler, who he'd seen perform at, conducting in uh, in Vienna, who was very uh, expressive. You know, arm waving and all this sort of thing, which he sort of consciously copied. Um, and also, he he was very um, astute when it came to the, the sort of capturing the theatre of of giving a, a, a speech so you know starting quietly and slowly and then building up and building up like almost in a symphonic way and I think the two they, they, they sort of collaborated a bit and, and sort of with a view to sort of presenting this thing but I whether she bought into what he was doing and and I think she was rather frightened by the, the rumors she kept hearing—certainly um, that's what she claims in her memoirs. Though whether that was written in retrospect or not, I don't know. Because, for instance, Ernst Rome, who she'd she'd had dealings with for the first film, uh, you know, knowing that he'd been summarily uh, m- murdered as part of the Light like, of the Long Knives, you know, that that sort of gave her a sort of strong sense of even Hitler's friends—if you cross him, you know—it's going to end badly. So mm-hmm. she was always wary of him in that respect.
0: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. I mean, because uh, that—that's—that's that's the thing, isn't it? It's, it's whether or not she uh, artistically, of course, she she—it's the right thing for her to do, isn't it? And uh, but then there's always that element of that fear of what can happen if you do cross Hitler. It kind of, uh, in some respects, it, it scares you, doesn't it? As a filmmaker, you've got to toe the line in some way, have not you?
1: Yeah. And i think like any any i think it, the fact that the ministry of propaganda was sort of um actually the, the first film she sort of produced herself in that she'd had some experience with producing and directing um and it partly came out of her pocket her brother helped finance it but certainly the second film the, the one that became triumph of the world mm. uh, that that came from uh, was funded by the Ministry of Propaganda, which meant Goebbels was involved, and he, that sort of made for all sorts of tensions because he he wanted to um, have have a say say in it, and she, as a sort of mm. you know very single-minded and independent-minded director, wanted to have autonomy, and that that sort of clash became much more apparent in her subsequent film. Um, she. The, the, probably the, a, a bigger film of hers, uh, and probably a more innovative and influential film, was Olympia, uh, uh, the, her film of the nineteen thirty-six Berlin Olympics. And she'd been approached to to do that, really on on the on the strength of the success of Triumph of, of the Will, and was sort of probably quite um, she she claimed it was it was all she was approached by the olympic committee to do this documentary absolutely autonomously without any involvement of in the ministry of propaganda but that was one of the half truths that I, I i alluded to earlier that she she retrospectively rather fudged it because they did they were bankrolling it and, and to to a lavish degree as well that they um the, the nazi party um she she had a huge crew of, of uh, over 100 uh, Cameramen and technicians and people it was, a, it was like an army of, of people that she was in charge of for, for Linux. and she she was pretty um, uh, She pretty had a much had a run of the of these uh, Olympic Games in terms of being allowed to Do things like um, she she had this idea to dig a, a trench alongside the long jump pit where she could keep her cameras could run on, on uh, dollies and um, that could be filmed, sort of looking looking up and getting very unusual angles. And a lot of the ways in which, um, to this day, the Olympics are filmed are, are mm-hmm. pretty much, you know, the ideas for, for, for filming in the ways that they did came from that her original film. Um, mm-hmm. Another obvious example being the way... Uh, the, the swimming events are filmed in the Olympics, you know, using underwater cameras. That was all her innovation, mm-hmm. uh, and she she would. But what she did in that that film was again using her sort of creative side. She she would do things like um the, the di- diving sequences are probably the best known because they're they're incredibly beautiful. They're they're, they're sort of like swooping birds. These divers seen from strange angles and. And there's no, she's not that interested in who's winning or who's, you know, like nowadays, you know, the the, the the heats that lead up to the the final sort of gold medal winner. She's just not interested. She's interested in the sort of visual um, poetry of it, really. And and um, there are some moments where she actually runs the film backwards, and will have a, a diver rising up out of the water and coming back on the board, but it's done on such a in such a subtle way, you don't even realise that's what's happening because it's part of a sequence of figures flying, swooping through the air like birds. Um, and, and, and it is, it's, it's an incredible piece of filmmaking. Um, and, and you do, uh, it's a reminder actually that though it's a, it's a very inconvenient truth that, uh, that Berlin Olympics of 1936, otherwise known as Hitler's Olympics, is where the modern olympic games were were invented the the whole sort of notion of uh, starting a journey with um, carrying torches for instance that was all one of the ideas that came out of that and many Riefenstahl filmed uh, runners starting out in Greece at at Olympia and heading across country uh, to Germany uh, to Berlin carrying the torch, that, that all started there, and she filmed them, um, one, another of the, her innovations actually was the very opening sequence of that film, Olympia, she has a, the the, uh, the, the discus, um, discus throw of Mayan, uh, is a sort of classical sculpture which um, she has sort of come to life by superimposing a flesh and blood athlete over the top of it, and that that film technique had never been really been tried before it's in the modern equivalent today would be something like sort of deep fake films or something where you get these illusions but that was, that was a, a, a quite a sort of remarkable thing which has been much imitated since then um and and then the whole business of her filming uh, those olympics was was an incredible uh physical undertaking almost because um she almost wore herself to, to exhaustion um, filming it because there were 250 miles of film exposed during the filming of it with all those different cameramen and she being a, something of a, a perfectionist that uh, insisted on doing all the editing herself so it actually took her two years to edit the film before it was then released in 1938 and um, and she she had all these gala screenings all around europe and was you know, she'd go to Rome and uh, wherever, um, all, all, the, all the capitals around Europe, Paris, I mean, um, and would be sort of great sort of fanfare and present presentations of bouquets of flowers and everything. Uh, and then it was all building up to her arrival in New York for the big premiere there, um, which all was very badly timed from her point of view and went disastrously wrong because by the time she went across on the ship um that was when um Kristallnacht was about to happen and she arrived and did a first press conference at New York only to be asked uh, what do you make of this uh, uh what, what's been happening in in Germany with the the burning of the synagogues uh, and um the the destruction of the Jewish shops and she didn't really know anything about it and and sort of they took this as her sort of trying to um sort of cover up or spin what was happening and uh, so she was I guess a bit unlucky there and and the coverage turned so nasty that she didn't even uh, didn't even screen the film she sort of uh, ended up having to return to Germany and uh, and that was it. it, you know She was by then too associated with the Nazis and her film career never really recovered Although she did sort of reinvent herself after the war uh, to an extent
0: Yeah, I mean because that, that was always um, something that um, I was always wondering about it, uh, it It is why Hollywood actually didn't want much to do with her But I think you've actually kind of answered that with uh, um Kristen Knapp and uh how how she answered that question. Um but um, yeah, I mean, she, she was she was actually because the build up to that, Hollywood
1: w- was very in, enthralled with her really. You know, someone yeah. like um, Walt Disney was well he he had some rather rather dodgy sort of fascistic uh sympathies anyway, uh, it, it turned out retrospectively. Um but he was certainly a fan of hers. Charlie Chaplin was a was a big fan of hers. Mm-hmm. Um, she was due to have a, a lunch with uh, Clark Gable. Uh, oh, really, and, uh, you, you know that that was then cancelled when it, all this sort of bad press came, and she was uh, uh, Hollywood sort of turned its back on her. And also all, all the sort of literary figures. One one of the people um, when she's staying in a t- hotel, one of the People leading all the sort of chanting outside her hotel was um, Dorothy Parker, and uh, you know that sort of all the New York literary set had, had uh, turned up to, to heckler really. Because um, had it not had it not been for that, you know, that I think uh, her, her had it not been for a time, Say if she'd gone a year earlier and just stayed in, mm-hmm. in America yeah. as was her plan and sort of met up with. Marlene Dietrich and, and um, sort of maybe done a bit of acting, but maybe done a lot of more filmmaking. I actually, actually had plans to make a film with uh, Marlena Dietrich and Clark Gable. And, um, you know, that, that it has, her story could have been very different. Mm. As it was, she sort of uh, went back to Germany and, was I, I'm not, in terms of her relationship with Hitler at, at this point, I think Hitler had got to uh she she didn't really have the same access she'd had before and I don't think they mm-hmm. were as, as friendly as before and, and obviously once once the war started he was uh he, he that was he was on a different path. Um but she was um she did try and make films during the war but they they didn't come to anything and there was some mm-hmm. uh after the war, she was accused of sort of trying to uh, destroy some of the footage from a film that never actually got released, but w- which had involved um, a, a, a gypsies that had supposedly come from one of the concentration camps mm-hmm. and used as extras. Um, I mean, she she denied this, but I think that's that seems to have been the case as to, as to what happened. Um, but again, at the end of the war, she was, they looked into that and decided that she, she hadn't known that that was uh, where the extras had come from. Um, and then after the war, she, um, she then sort of reinvented herself really as a photographer uh, and uh, went off to do these, uh, 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 spent eight months out in um, uh, filming the Nuba tribe uh, and uh, in the Sudan, and they—they, um, they, no one really filmed them before, or, or photographed them before. And this, the exhibition that came from from her time with them was was quite groundbreaking, and and won her a whole new sort of audience. And there were all sorts of people who became very interested in her in the seventies, and uh, people like Andy Warhol, you know, uh, and Mick Jagger, and and later. Uh, jay foster they all sort of wanted to shake her hands and ask her about her film career and everything and she sort of became a relatedly a, a, a something of a celebrity in america um but but always she was dogged by her her time with hitler and she would say uh in the 90s you know sort of i'm in my 90s and i spent barely a few months working for him why, why does everyone keep asking about it well it's obvious why and, and, mm. and she knew why, why. Um, and and I think because it was quite unusual for someone who was part of essentially his inner circle to have survived the war and to, it was only it of really her and Albert Speer and, and Hess who sort of, he, he disappeared just started winding, taking prison in in the UK and then end up in spun prison with, um, Albert Sphere. Uh, so they were the sort of last survivors in a way. So of course people were going to want, be interested in her story and, uh, she couldn't escape it.
0: Cause it's, um, cause I mean, I've always seen her as a, as a very talented filmmaker. Um, but seeing her, uh, watching those films, um, trying to the world and Olympia, whether I agree with, uh, um, you know what was actually being depicted or not, you still got to uh, admire admire the filmmaking prowess that she actually had um so i 've always seen her as a very important part of film history um whether whether we view her as a propagandist or as a filmmaker um, h- How important do you think she is to the history of film
1: yeah i think well um, it's uh, I, I, her importance was sort of diminished by people wanting not wanting to be associated with her so i think if some of the the the, the techniques we have talked about her in, her innovations people wouldn't want to admit that that was she was the where they got the idea from i think mm. of the, the afternoon you know, sort of um still sort of drawing a veil over it but, but i think by then anyway um you know she had change things and I think particularly in with documentary making and uh, so with, with any any f- sport uh, film of sport will owe her a, a debt and, and and she will have influenced it um even if people aren't necessarily aware today that that's she was the originator of whatever the te- techniques might be um mean, I think probably her 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 greatest achievement is, is the fact that she was doing all this as a woman. It's, it's mm. because so few film directors who were women in, in the certainly in that part of the 20th century. But even even today, I mean, the, the, mm. you look at the um, uh, Oscar ceremonies each year, and it's a there's always a sort of concerted effort to try and um, recognise female directors, and 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 always it's um, you know, much is made of it when, when it happens but when, when you consider that she was doing it in a much more um, male dominated mm-hmm. era um, yeah. you know she she in a, in a funny sort of way is, is the um, she's a sort of feminist trailblazer that, that the feminist movement would, would rather forget because mm. of her yeah. associations yeah. So she's a bit like a Margaret Thatcher in that way you know Margaret Thatcher incredibly divisive figure um, but she was sort of uh, similarly uh, a feminist trailblazer who was surrounded by men and sort of uh, took on a man's world and succeeded uh, Mm -hmm. on her own terms. Um, But feminists sort of not particularly keen on that association with Margaret Thatcher, and and I think the same is true of Lain Riefershal. So it's where where politics gets uh, drawn into those sort of, Mm. um, you know, the the feminist movement, I suppose.
0: The Dictator's Muse by Nigel Farndale is released now and available from all good retailers, published by Doubleday.